This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So carrying the weight of my black experience into another country, just, you know, real time life like this was obviously I didn't, you know, grow up in, you know, in Egypt and uh, going over there, even on a ride, I think was some form of me satisfying uh, on a flight over it was me satisfying this like childhood connection. But then actually putting my, you know, feet on the ground and walking around and being in that cab, it it interrupted whatever I was at this point in my life. And I was 22 years old, but at that moment in time, I knew that I wasn't just connected to my own blood family. Like I knew I had a connection to something that was that was very old and whatever my existence was, I knew it had to be special. I'm Jim Perry, and this is Met, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, who we are, as told by pyramids in the sky. Next on Euphemet. Across open space, across time, a connection to something ancient set in the stars. Who are we? Products of experience directed by something ancient, unknown, alien. In symbols, we decode meaning. Triangles construct form. Runes for fallen family tell us something, but ultimately keep their secret. That we are them. Concealed by stone, looted for treasure. What if we learned that our own blood flows through those same dusty veins crushed into dirt on royal floors? Brandon was living in the Bay Area, a screenwriter who wasn't a stranger to immersing himself, his mind, his heart, into other worlds. But Brandon was about to find himself, a character, in his own real-life movie. As a broke artist in New York, I used to go to the Barnes & Noble at Union Square. No, I don't even know if it's still open, but uh, this, you know, it was from 1998 
from 1998 to 2007. So I found myself going to the esoteric section a lot uh, and reading a lot of things. And I found a book called The Bible and Flying Saucers, which uh, by Barry Downing, which just was like an uh, incredibly odd title. So I picked it up and, and because I was so broke, I used to just sit there and read books with it, buy a cup of coffee and read books. And one of the things that I, and the reason why I mentioned him is that he said wholeheartedly, no, I've never seen a UFO, never. And, and, but it doesn't stop him from believing uh, in the existence for all the reasons he, you know, has put forth in that book. And then, you know, the work of Terrence McKenna, who uh, just one of my lovely Americans or humans to ever be. And I think it was true hallucinations. There's a moment where he sees a craft in the sky. And what uh, was really unique about it is that he didn't immediately buy into it. Like he was able to interrogate it in his mind and say, okay, like, what is this? What am I looking at? And his discovery around that phenomenon was was very uh, helpful for me. And but again, I had never seen UFOs, never seen extra dimensional beings, nothing of that sort. I moved to uh, I was in L.A. Uh, I finished grad school in Miami, 2010. Moved to L.A. for a year. I moved to the Bay Area in 2011, living in Berkeley. Uh, there was a coffee shop that I went into, and I was writing. I was not writing any science fiction or, you know, anything of the sort. I was actually writing this really gritty urban thriller. I am a fan of cannabis. I was not under any sort of influence of anything other than caffeine. And it was sort of the coffee shop had closed and it was around 1030 at night. And I'm walking down San Pablo. I lived in North Berkeley. Streets were quiet. That was one of the unique things about Berkeley streets at night are all generally always quiet. So quiet night and I'm walking. And suddenly, you know, we all get these impressions sometimes, but something was like, look up in the sky. I look up and I see what my mind first interpreted as some sort of like, it was like a comet or something falling down. And I was like, oh, and it was a, it was a, uh, uh, I think it was a full moon that night. So the night was, sky was fairly bright and so I could see it and I was like oh man I've never seen some shit like this before <laughs> like this is cool and it's coming down and then uh, right as I was about to turn away from it I saw that it started flying straight ahead that's <laughs> clearly some craft of some sort and I keep looking and then I see it's you know really hit the moonlight sky and I see it was like a black pyramid with these two sort of lights in the back of it. And that's when my mind was like, huh. It was like, it was, I mean, it was one of those moments where, and I've maybe only had this twice in my life, where I was just like, my, my jaw dropped, you know? And I'm just like, and I remember looking around just like, oh my God, I wanted to share in this experience. Like somebody, is walking down the street, right? There has to be a car, like somebody has to see this. And there's like no one. And and I turned back to look at it. Then it was as if, which is really strange, it was like my 
mine was able to zoom in a bit. And for some reason, it just suddenly, it was so huge in the sky and it was completely silent. And that's when I think, I think the silence is what was like, okay, this cannot be some man-made craft. Like this has to be in something, but we only have the language to call it extraterrestrial. Even though I'm not uh, some sort of devout Christian and all these things, but at some point I went from being in awe to like it felt like I was having a spiritual experience. Like there was something that I was connected to with this, this craft. Then I watched it literally fly into a cloud and I was waiting for it to come out the other side like, oh, as big as the thing was and the nice guy, there's no way that it wouldn't have, uh, like the, if, like I didn't even see any movement in the cloud. Like it just, it literally flew in and that was it. One of the things Barry Downing, you know, theorizes in his book, he, you know, looks at the biblical text of, you know, uh, description of angels traveling on pillars of clouds and, you know, uh, and disappearing into those. And that was the only thing I had, my mind had to interpret because it was like, it was so huge and it literally looked like it went into this cloud, like it was a doorway. I I walked back and I was I had a roommate at the time and and our, she and her boyfriend when I get in the place they were like watching TV and I was like okay I know I'm going to sound crazy here but I swear I just saw a UFO and of course they looked at me like okay Brandon must be high and you know we didn't I didn't say much because I was really like moved by it like it was just so I had no fear when I was looking at this thing. Like nothing. That's why I say it was spiritual because it, I just felt connected to it. And I literally went online and I was like, okay, just like someone out here has to have seen this. And there was nothing. And, and, uh, one of the elders, I had a, uh, one of my old mentors from the, uh, early nineties. who I met in North Carolina, very, you know, very wise man, you know, lots of esoteric knowledge. I told him about it and he said, plain and simple, they they wanted you to see them. If I actually was seeing something that was physical, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that's the fascinating thing about UFOs is that it may exist as a mental construct, but that doesn't negate the fact that it's actually in your reality. Whatever is in your consciousness that you allow, you allow space for what is possible. Just leaving enough space in your mind and your consciousness to, to be open to the things you don't know. And I do think that that it has a you know, what I what I experienced that night has something to, to do with my life in general.
you know, I was my mother's seventh child and I, uh, I was definitely, even though I don't think I considered myself odd, I, I, I realized my siblings and even my mother, uh, my father wasn't part of my life at all. I think because I was such a precocious kid, I don't think they ever really understood me, you know, and I, I didn't get a lot of support around education and, Fortunately, maybe because I was born under the sign of Pisces, I had this natural sense of being able to dream. And I, and I always dreamed of, of doing better. And, uh, and religion didn't necessarily do it for me. You know, I didn't buy into the church as much, uh, but I feel like I always had a spiritual connection. Like there was something that I knew inside of me that connected with, you know, divinity. 1994, I'm at North Carolina School of the Arts School of Filmmaking in my second year, and I applied for this grant. It was like an art grant uh, sponsored by the Seaman family who are behind like Duke University and different things. And they honestly, I met these people. I'm not sure if they're still with us today, but really wonderful people, super wealthy, but really wonderful people. So they offered this grant. I was one of the people who got the grant and it gave me a trip to Egypt. My brother and I, who was three years older than me, we, we were very different. And when I, before I took the trip to Egypt, the night before he picked me up from the airport, he was, uh, his car was shot at by a guy who I grew up with, who was actually a good friend of mine. But all their lives had changed. They were all in something different than where I was at. And so I spent a couple of weeks there and, you know, my brother had threw a little cookout for me and all these guys who were Crips came and guns all over the place. And I'm just like, man, I'm just a dude in film school trying to like uh, do this life. But I will say it was actually fascinating how many guys were fascinated that I was going to Egypt. And I was like, dude, y'all make more money than me. Y'all can go. I hop on a plane, I get over to Egypt. And I got there at night. I had a stopover in Vienna for a bit. And I get to Egypt. This is my first time, you know, growing up in the hood in Pittsburgh, didn't have access to money to travel and all those things. So this is my first time being out of the country. I'm in Egypt at night in this taxi, headed to the hotel that I had booked. A feeling came over me that had never happened before in my life. And it was, I felt, like I was home. I just felt this joy. It's like my heart shock or whatever. Just exploded this joy of being, and it was just like in my mind, some kept saying like, wow, why do I feel like I'm at home? I think I was in, uh, it was in Luxor. It was, I was riding a bike and it was a 107 degree temperature. And I'm going across this road, and, and anyone that's ever been to, to uh, uh, Egypt knows, especially in Cairo, there's a lot of crazy driving, lots of crazy driving. <laughs> so I'm crossing the street, and there's all kind of like, I guess it was a, a throughway to where uh, it seemed like a lot of goods were traveling along this road. And so I'm going across the street, and suddenly my uh, bike stops working. Like, I don't know if it was the chain or something. And I'm like, and there's this, this, uh, truck speeding towards me looking like 
whoever was driving was like, bro, I ain't stopping. So you're about to get smacked. I don't even care, like whatever. And uh, um, and weirdly enough, it I don't know what it was with the bike, but I stayed calm, stayed super calm. And whatever I did, I did something. And it literally, uh, I got moving within, the dude really wasn't trying to stop that man. Like when he flew past me, like with, you know, seconds after I, I got moving. But I actually rarely walked away from it, like with this feeling that I was being protected. So I get to the place and, you know, I'm getting to know Egypt over a number of days. And I um, ended up meeting some really cool Australians and the Scottish guy. Uh, first of all, I'd have to say, I never met white dudes who reminded me of ghetto black dudes until I met these dudes from Australia. Like, didn't talk like ghetto cats or nothing, but they were so about it, man. It was so, so enjoyable. I wish social media was around so I could have kept in touch with those guys. Uh, so we decided to take a day trip. We're in, uh, we were in Luxor. Yeah, I think we were in Luxor and we were taking a day trip to Aswan, where the dam is at, the Aswan Dam and the Ramses Monument. So we get out, you know, my Australian uh, friends I've met, they, they're they already traveling to it and I, to the uh, monument. But I stayed in a van for a sec for some reason, can't remember. And then I started getting hit up for some people, you know, for, uh, you know, hitting up tourists for things. So I lagged behind the group. So as I'm walking around trying to catch up with them and I'm not really paying attention to what I was really there for. I was just trying to hurry up to catch up with them. So as I come around, though, I do look up and then I finally see just the amazing features of the Ramses monument and Ramses and it was the most mind blowing, more than the pyramids and everything. That monument blew me away. And as I'm walking uh, to go inside, the voice, inner voice said, look up. I looked up and looked at the hieroglyphs and all that that were, you know, above the entrance. And, and I was just, my gaze just kind of stuck on it for a really long moment. And then I just sort of snapped out of it. It was like, all right. So I went inside and did the tour. Years later in New York City, somewhere between 2003, 2005, I started going to the School of Theosophy uh, which is really cool. They had, you know, so I was, you know, I was intrigued by the esoteric. So learning about Madame Blavatsky and what she was offering was, was interesting. And there was this one, I was one of the only black people who showed up for it. And there was this one older black woman who also showed up. So she and I became friends and we went, uh, after one of the live sessions, we went and had coffee. I remember asking her, was, was she picking up on the tension that whenever I asked the teachers of the lodge a question, they would, there would just be this strange, you know, antagonistic energy. And so she said, yes, I have picked up on that. And then she stopped and then she said, listen, I'm going to tell you, I've been having these dreams 
about you. As she said, I've seen you in ancient Egypt and there was this name that she was like, I don't even know how to pronounce it. And she wrote it down on a piece of paper. She said that whoever this person was, uh, he was responsible for organized religion. So she said, in her opinion, the reason why I was getting this kind of tension from some of the teachers in the lodge is because of that past life experience. When someone just tells you that basically, and she said you had the power of life and death, like you were considered a God, you would think most people would take that as like, oh shit, no, I used to be a God. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. Like I, you know, I, I didn't brush it off, but I didn't feel any ownership of it because it was just someone's point of view. But I did go home and uh, I got on my roommate's computer and I Googled the name that she had written. That's when it floored me. So <laughs> it was Ray Harakti. And that hieroglyph is the hieroglyph of him is the one he's right above that entrance into the Ramses monument. Her telling me that, then it made sense even though why I had that initial feeling of while you're home. That feeling I felt in that taxi was so joyous. Like it was a feeling of returning home. Over the years, I've questioned that connection to ancient Egypt, but I don't even question it anymore. I live with it. Uh, I Every now and again, I look up Ray Harakti and, and try to understand more. Uh, you know, about his existence. I still haven't found it a, a lot, but, you know, I, I know that there was something, and I did some academic study in, on Egypt and the system of Ma'at, and I have to say that I do believe this. I believe it. I can't say it's 100% true, but I believe it, that ancient Kemet, which really made it special, beyond all the constructions of pyramids and the great monuments, I have done enough academic study that I can strongly believe, again, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I am pretty confident in saying there was no slavery in ancient Egypt. I know these are pillars of Christianity and you know uh, Judaism and even Islam. It did not happen. Ancient Egypt had uh, there's a scholar, Theophile Banga, who bluntly puts it that it had 35 centuries with no slavery, no state prisons, and no, you know, uh, capital murder. And I also know from an academic point that throughout Egypt, during, uh, you know, its great dynasties, there were up to 48 different autonomous states who had their own coinage. And what we, you know, given in the Christian tradition of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were taken directly from the Book of the Coming Forth by Day. And it was this, uh, it was called the 32 Negative Confessions. But what was unique that sort of Moses stripped away, or what we credit Moses as stripping away, is it wasn't just, I should not steal, I should not, you know, sleep with my neighbor's wife. It was, I shall not 
dirty the waters. And it was because that that water system was it had its own deity around that. So essentially what they did is they created a very sophisticated way of cooperation. But the builders of the pyramid were actually paid workers. They were not slaves. It really begins to unravel why we're all still so fascinated with what they did because they did something in coordination with each other that we still have a hard time. Even if you take away just the concrete, you know, mastery of building these massive pyramids that, you know, folks still haven't been able to, to replicate, but it took human beings really working together in this organized system. And that's not something, and I'll even hard, that's not something that slaves can produce, right? There's takes a, there's a level of organization in that, that that's not slave work. Like there's there's love that got put into that work. Without, you know, trying to step on anyone's religion and all that, even with Hegel, who Karl Marx was obviously very inspired by Hegel's historical assumption that we went from primal societies to slave master paradigms. And, you know, they foreground ancient Egypt as being that. And I was like, I just think that was one of the most egregious errors of the way that he thought and the way they perpetuated this master-slave paradigm as being natural to human beings. I mean, I, I mean, it, it may sound overly simple, but I do think that there's a real insistence to get people to continually pass on a belief that oppression, systems of oppression are natural. That just lets you know how well oiled the system is. That we tell people that they were born into sin. They were born into, uh, this is just the ways of the world. And I'm like, just imagine if we have some historical you know, I don't even could say like historical proofs, but just if we have some history that helps us understand of our possibilities of what we can do together. And the more that, you know, the true evil of centuries of white supremacy has been what it's just done to more than what it's done to people of color. It's what is done to the minds of white people. <laughs> to think that there is anyone simply based off, you know, their meat suit makes them superior. It's it's it it to me it it, it is the seed of mediocrity. I met some brother from DC who was studying at the University of Cairo. And he's, man, his brother was amazing. He, you know, he had some ups and downs over there, but he told me something that has always stuck with me. We got into a conversation at, and about truth. And, you know, we were, you know, talking about how much Egypt has been hitting in terms of black history. And, but he said, the truth is like the sun. It shines on all of us. 
and even today, how truth just seems to not really exist at times. But the truth is like the sun, you know, and we all have access to it. You know, no one can claim truth to be their own and, and again, use it as some kind of, you know, football for control. And so many of the the connections that I've made since then definitely provide me with a sense of uh, of purpose in my life to just do the best I can. You know, it's not about having the power over people's lives, but the power to be in people's lives. So, you know, it's interesting that throughout life, you try to figure out ways to put together your own puzzle of how you relate to this time. And and I think, you know, I'm not saying anything original here. I think that there's some validity to the saying that you just don't incarnate in this place once, that you exercise numerous lives through this, you know, life plane. And some people, I think, and I was told this by by that same woman from the School of Theosophy and also someone earlier that, uh, you know, a lot of souls come here to from other places of existence. And it's it's almost like karma that they need to come here and do certain things, uh, maybe even to pay a karmic debt. Uh, so, you know, whether those things are true, I don't know, you know, but I think they add this interesting texture to the possibilities of, you know, of life itself, of what we're doing here. It's some other consciousness letting you know that there's just more to this story. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. This feature was edited and scored by John McEdward. Thank you to Brandon for his story. Brandon is a listener of Euphemet, and you can have your story featured too. Reach out at jim at euphemet.com. Thank you to our sponsors, AMC Networks, Shudder, and BetterHelp. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, just visit euphemet.com. And for even more, check out Night Drift. It's our weekly radio broadcast discussing Euphemet and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and strange. Sundays at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up.